Or if you were like me and you're getting too hot, you'll send Lauren downstairs to turn the air conditioner back on. Um, We are in the book of Philippians again this morning. Philippians chapter 3, if you would please turn there with me. And if you would please stand as we read uh, Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11. Father God, we ask that you would open our eyes this morning to your word, that its truths would uh, penetrate our hearts and impact us in the way that you have designed for it to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now, Paul is, is saying to finally, uh, although he uses the word finally, he's going to go on for another two chapters, um, very similar to some preachers that I know. Uh, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Essentially, he's telling them, look, rejoice, but let me warn you that you will encounter some troubles, some issues. Um, there will be some people that are going to cause you problems. Remember that he is sending to the Philippian church Epaphroditus and Timothy. These were two fine young men um, among a not very um, stellar group that he has with him in Rome. Uh, Those in Rome, they were in it only for themselves, as he explained in the last chapter. They were perverting the gospel for their own personal gain. And now Paul is going to warn them about another group of people that are doing a similar thing. And he's saying, look, look, look out for them. Look, this is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. If we rejoice in the Lord, we will find strength and security. Now, who is the group that is causing these problems for the church? Well, the, the term for them is the Judaizers. And basically, these are a group of people who have, um, they would come into an area behind Paul and, and, and he would go out and preach the gospel, and they would attempt to convince people that they needed to add to the gospel um, the, the Jewish uh, dietary laws, the Mosaic law, and especially circumcision. 
Essentially that you were not a true believer until you adopted the laws of the Jews. And they argue that, that, that without these things, that one could never be a true Christian. Now, there are still other groups of Christians who uh, similar, hold very similar views to these people. Um, they more or less do the same thing. Not so much about the adult circumcision, uh, but there are, there's a big emphasis on some of these groups about keeping the Old Testament law. The dietary and the ceremonial laws about learning Hebrew and worshiping on Saturdays and, and, and the, these other restrictions that people have tried to add on to the gospel. And we might think that these groups are a little bit harmless, but Paul is going to use here three ironic terms to describe his opponents. Okay, three ironic terms. And none of these are meant in a positive light in any way whatsoever. Uh, these are terms that all of them are terms that the Judaizers would use for other people, um, for their opponents, for those that they saw as being outside of the kingdom of God. And yet Paul emphatically explains that they are the ones who are damaging the church and they are the ones who are perverting the gospel. So we look at these three terms. The first ironic term that Paul uses is, is he says, look out for the dogs. Okay, to, to call someone a dog is very rarely a compliment um, from what I understand uh, it's very rarely a compliment today, and it never would have been a compliment in the first century. Um, first century Jewish dogs were not treated like 21st century American dogs. Um, now, let me see a show of hands. How many of you own or have owned a dog in this room? Um, that's pretty much everybody. We recently uh, acquired a, a new dog at our house, and um, her name is Scout Cadenza Kish, and she's a little... 18-pound Labradoodle dog, and this week I got to take one of the girls, and we went to the pet store to pick out her new name tag, and and now Scout very proudly on her neck wears a pink, sparkly name tag that has her name engraved in it and our phone numbers in case she were to, for some reason, you know, run away and decide she needs a new home. Um, This would never have happened in first-century Israel. These dogs are, are essentially coyotes. Okay, they're scavengers. They would, they would come, come, come in behind and just kind of eat the scraps. If you've been anywhere outside of, if you've been to third world or developing nations, you'll see that dogs are still pretty much this way. They're not a part of the family like we would consider our animals. And the term dog was used as a reference to Gentiles or to those who were outside of the Jewish faith. This is an insulting term. Uh, in Psalm 22, which is the great messianic psalm, it begins, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it, it depicts Jesus on the cross hundreds of years before it actually happens. But in Psalm 22, verse 16, we read that, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, who is surrounding him? Well, it's the dogs. Literal dogs? Well, well, no. We can look to what happened at the crucifixion. These were the Roman soldiers and the Jewish authorities and those who had wrongfully accused Jesus. These are the ones that pierced his hands and his feet, the ones who wanted him dead, the ones who sent him to the cross. These were the dogs. And in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has a conversation with a Canaanite woman, and he also uses this term, dog. She's, she's, she comes to the disciples and she's asking for healing for her daughter. And they send her away. And, and Jesus uh, t- 
tells them, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And Jesus answered her, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, for it be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Amazingly, Jesus uses this term to describe a Gentile woman, and she takes no offense to it at all. This is a term used to describe those who are outside of the faith. And in fact, when Jesus says that it's wrong to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, the woman is quick to say, but yes, even the dogs eat the scraps from the master's table. So for Paul to describe the Judaizers as dogs would have been not just an insult, but this is something even more than that. You know, they thought that they were the ones keeping the law. But in fact, Paul is saying, by insisting on keeping the Old Testament law, you are breaking the new covenant that Christ has established. If you think that you, they thought that the Gentile believers were dogs, but Paul is in fact saying, look, you are the dogs. Next, he says, look out for the evildoers, which is incredibly ironic again, because they are the ones who believe that they are rightfully and lawfully keeping the commands that God has given them. You know, think of what they're doing. They are insisting on obedience to the law, and yet in attempting to force the Gentile Christians to keep the law, they are the ones that are actually doing evil. See, Paul has great personal experience with this as well. He knows what it's like to think that you are serving the Lord and come to find out, in fact, that you have been doing evil. This is what he gets to in just a moment. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings, Uh, we, We see Elijah at the top of a mountain, and he's challenging the prophets of Baal to light a fire with nothing. Elijah was mocking them, crying out. He he said, cry aloud. He's talking to these prophets who are not successfully able to light this fire. He says, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps... He's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. So the custom of the prophets of Baal was to cut themselves in order to get their God's attention. This was also the custom of other different religious uh, religions as well. And, and, and circumcision, which was the, this great point of pride for the Judaizers, Paul is saying, by insisting upon that, you are no more than one of these false prophets of another religion. This is not a sign of your obedience, but in fact, this is a sign that you are no longer falling into God's covenant. So the irony of all three of these terms is not going to be lost on the people that are reading it, and it's not going to be lost on those who are having these terms described of them. See, there has been a shift. There has been a change is what Paul is saying. There is something new that has come. The old has passed away. And do not keep insisting on these things that have now been replaced. So so what is the real circumcision? Well, Paul says that we who worship by the Spirit of God glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
In John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to a woman at the well. And he's having a conversation with her. And really, he's, he's trying to, um, he's really engaging her in a conversation about faith. And, and she brings up this question to him because she's a Samaritan. And she asks him, uh, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Uh, Samaritans were seen as, as half-breeds. Uh, they, they were not full-blooded Jews. But the Jews insisted on worshiping in Jerusalem, just to give you a little bit of the, the backstory here. But Jesus answered her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what did Paul say? What is the true circumcision? We who worship by the spirit of God. You know, worship is no longer a matter of where, it's, but it's a matter of how. It's a matter of the heart. In Romans chapter 2, Paul continues along this line. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one inwardly, or who is merely one outwardly, but nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, no external action is enough to make someone a Jew. No external action, no type of obedience is enough to, to make somebody a Christian or a follower of God. And the fact that circumcision uh, is something of the heart and not of the flesh, this isn't even a, a, a concept novel to Paul. If we look back in Jeremiah chapter 9, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised. And the house of, the, of Israel, and all the house of Israel, are uncircumcised in heart. This is the exact same message that Paul is giving to the Philippians. That look, circumcision is not about the external. All who are circumcised in the flesh will be punished. This is what Jeremiah says. And he lists off Israel's enemies and opponents one by one until finally at the end he drops that bomb and he says that all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Now, they were all circumcised physically, but what he's saying is that unless you are circumcised in the heart, you cannot be part of the covenant of God. See, their confidence was in the flesh. He says, but we are the circumcision, and we put no confidence in the flesh. There's no confidence in anything outside of the Lord. Paul says that although I myself have confidence have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence I have more. 
And sometimes we kind of ask this question, you know, what about this person? You know, we, we all can think of examples and people who have done great things, a philanthropist who have given away millions or billions, or people that are just genuinely nice people. They're not believers, but we think, well, gosh, what about those people? Surely they might be able to get to heaven. Surely God would make some type of exception for them. They're, they're just, they're a great person. And yet, here comes Paul, and he says, look, if anybody is able to be saved by what they've done, it's me. If anybody is, be able, is able to be saved by keeping all the laws and following all the rules, it's going to be Paul. And Paul then gives his reason that he would have for his confidence in the flesh. This includes both his heritage as well as his accomplishment. His heritage and his accomplishment. So his heritage, by his birth, by his family, by his education, this is a great reason for Paul's confidence. He says that he is circumcised on the eighth day. Now this is in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant. And amazingly, we found out in our first childbirthing class, this was before we realized we couldn't have boys, we are only capable of having girls, Um, we found out that all newborns are born with a vitamin K deficiency. Did you know that? And this is something that develops naturally over the first week of life. It's, it doesn't get passed along through the mother's placenta. And so, so, by some amazing coincidence, the Lord commanded the Israelites to circumcise their children on the eighth day. After the blood is able to clot itself. And, and you know, somewhere between 1% and 2% of baby boys would literally bleed out if they were circumcised before the eighth day. It's incredible. Paul says that he is of the people of Israel. Now, this is a term that Israelites use about themselves. Everyone else called them Jews. They called themselves Israelites. Now, he's not some proselyte. He's not some Jewish convert. He's not a half-breed like these Samaritans were. But Paul is a pure-blooded Israelite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. This was the only son born in the Promised Land. The only tribe to remain faithful to Judah in the house of David after Solomon died. King Saul was a Benjaminite. That's where Paul's name Saul came from. This was a particular point of pride for people born of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew child born to Hebrew parents. That also meant that he spoke Hebrew. Um, He went to school in Jerusalem. He studied under the, the, the rabbi Gamaliel. So Paul is an insider. Everything about his birth, if we think of, of what would make somebody righteous, well, first you start off with their, with their birth, with their heritage, with their background, their family, their education. Everything about that is perfect. It doesn't get any more perfect than Paul. You think about this in terms of, of being a, a pure-blooded American. Okay, like your parents came over on the Mayflower. Uh, They served in the Revolutionary War. They were statesmen and generals. Somehow your family legacy at Harvard or Yale goes back generations and generations. Okay, you're an American's American. Now, I am uh, nobody's American. You know, my family didn't get here until the late 1800s, early 1900s. They came from Poland and and, uh, Czech and Slovak and Hungary and all these little Eastern Bloc countries. So, you know, by birth, I'm not like a great American like an American's American would be. But it doesn't stop with Paul's birth and his upbringing. But he also has a very impressive list of personal accomplishments. Read about what he is. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, Pharisee means a separated one. 
These are people that kept the law perfectly. They were so concerned about keeping the commandments of God that they, in fact, built themselves a fence around the law, as it's described. They had their own oral tradition that was just as important for them to keep as what God's actual commands were. Breaking the oral tradition became just as bad to them as breaking the law. There's about 6,000 of these in Israel at the time. They did not associate with unclean people. They were separated. As to the law, Paul is a Pharisee. As to zeal, he's a persecutor of the church. Remember that Paul approved of and watched over the stoning of Stephen. He started this campaign to eradicate Christianity while it was still in its infancy. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus stops Paul, Saul dead in his tracks and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as to righteousness under the law, Paul is blameless. Again, this is more than just keeping the Ten Commandments. The Pharisees assumed that a good Israelite could keep all 613 laws in the Old Testament. The law also provided a provision for them to become clean if they, for some reason, broke a law. So he lived an exemplary life that other Pharisees would have looked at him and said, that man is blameless. He is perfect. So if anybody thinks that they have any reason to be able to have a standing before God based on who they are and what they've done, Paul is the guy. But, he says, and this is not just a big but, but this is a huge but. But whatever gain I had, counted as, I, had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amazingly, this is the only place in the New Testament that Paul calls Jesus my Lord. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So all of these things, his impressive accomplishments, his birth, his heritage, who he is, is all worthless compared to knowing Christ. Every last bit of it. He says it's all rubbish. And this is, this is almost a, a crude expletive that Paul uses here. We might say crap, or in fact, if we want to be faithful, we would probably use another four-letter word that I can't say right now. Um, but that's what Paul is saying, that all of his good things, all of that is trash compared to knowing Christ. In Isaiah 64, verse 6 through 8, The prophet says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isaiah says that we are all like the one who is unclean, that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And this is a nice way of saying what what, what Isaiah is actually saying, which is a, a, a menstrual rag. That's what our good deeds look like to God by themselves. Our most impressive, impressive accomplishments, the greatest things that we could ever do in and of themselves are only fit to be tossed out and destroyed. So first century readers, they would read Paul's list of who he was and what he did, and they would think, if Paul is not worthy enough, then there's no way that I could ever be worthy enough. And that is exactly the point that Paul is making. Jesus says a similar thing about John the Baptist in Matthew 11. He says that, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than me. See, Jesus is saying that even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the best among men. See, you will never be able to be more religious than Paul, the Pharisee. You will never be able to be a nicer and better person than John the Baptist. However, for anyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ, for those who know Jesus, they are greater than everyone. So as a result, our standing before God is based entirely on what Jesus has done for us. It's based entirely on what Christ has done for us. Commentator D.A. Carson wrote this. He said that most who read these pages, I suspect, will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and ancient rites of race and religious heritage. But we may be tempted to brag about still less important things, our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families or political or business successes, our denominational alignments, or even about which version of the Bible that we use. Be careful of people like that. They tend to regard everyone who is outside their little group as somehow inferior. Somehow along the way, they inadvertently or even intentionally and maliciously imagine that faith in Christ Jesus and delight in him is less important than their personal accomplishments. Instead, look around for those whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ, whose confident boast, constant boast is Jesus Christ, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast is in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. See, with every being, every fiber of my being, I want to boast about something that I have done and something about who I am. I want to be responsible for me and for my own salvation. And yet there's nothing, Paul tells us, that we can boast in. The only thing that matters is this. Do I know Jesus? And do I trust him over me? Timothy Keller uh, writes this amazing definition of what the gospel is. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, all of our best efforts amount to nothing. Even my goodness isn't really good. Because sin taints, it permeates everything that I do and everything that I am. And yet the good news is this, even though I'm far worse than I ever would think that I am, Christ's grace and mercy and love is far greater than I could ever imagine and hope that it would be. See, Jesus isn't scared off by us. He's not scared off by our boasting or our bragging. He doesn't point and call us unclean. He doesn't call us dogs. He doesn't say these things about us. He doesn't give us a list of things that we first have to do in order to come to him. In fact, he says that you can't do it, but don't worry because I did it for you. I can make you clean. Come with me. Do I trust him as my savior and do I recognize him as Lord? Or will I be like one of those who try to add on to what Jesus has already done for them? I think one of our greatest dangers is if we take that, that we actually might become like these Judaizers. 
that we would see the gospel and we try to add other things onto it, that you must clean yourself up before you come to him, that you have to get your life right before you come to him, that you have to do something else other than believe and trust in Jesus. And the Bible is clear. That's all that there is. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful and and challenged by your word this morning. Whereas we look and see those who have attempted to to subvert the gospel with their own theology and with their own thoughts, and and, and Lord, how often might we have done that? Lord, it's so easy to look at ourselves and to think of ourselves as more highly than we ought to think and to look at those who are outside of the faith and to look down upon them. But Lord, these are your people as well. Father, we pray that you would use us to reach out with the gospel. The good news of Jesus is that we're far worse than we think that we are, but his grace is far more than we could hope it to be. We're grateful for your love and your mercy in our lives, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.